If you play the electric guitar, you have probably obsessed over pedals at some point. I don't mean pedals on your bike, I'm talking about effects pedals, the things that go in between your guitar and the amp, and you stomp on them on stage, and they add some sort of a different sound to your guitar. Now, effects pedals can sound great, but I actually think the best guitar players can sound good with just a guitar and an amp. Let's ask the horns if they agree. Welcome to Strong Songs, a podcast about music. My name is Kirk Hamilton, and as always, I'm so glad that you've joined me to talk about music made with electric guitars, and music made with acoustic guitars, and music made with no guitars at all. We're definitely going to be talking about that electric guitar kind of music on this episode, and I'm excited to get into it. So turn up the volume, sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. A funny thing happens to me whenever I pick a song to focus on for the next episode. You know, I always have this running list going of songs that I might talk about on this show, but uh, at some point I have to kind of decide, all right, the next episode is going to be this song. I pick the song and I really sit down and I listen to it and I kind of hear it in a different way. It makes sense, right? You know, I'm kind of thinking, all right, what am I going to focus on? What are the themes going to be? What am I hearing? What am I going to be able to kind of pull out and tease out and highlight for people? And it's cool because it kind of puts me in the mind space that I hope that I'm putting listeners in when they eventually listen. I hear so many things in each of these songs that I didn't hear before. I didn't really notice or hadn't taken the time to make myself realize that I was hearing, if that makes sense. It's really just active listening. I think that's generally the accepted term for it. And I am a very active listener, and yet I can always be listening. Listening more actively. So I hope that if this show has done nothing else for all of you out there listening, it has encouraged you to do more active listening. I have heard from plenty of people who have said that, and that makes me very, very happy. Um, I would like nothing more than for everyone to be a much more active listener in all aspects of their life. Whenever you hear music, even if it's during an ad or you know the the trailer for a movie or something, just really keep listening to that music and trying to hear as much of it as possible. Thanks so much, as always, to Strong Songs' Patreon backers. We're closing in on 250, and if we can get to 250, I'm going to do a bonus episode. So if you like this show, I really do hope that you'll consider becoming a backer on Patreon. You can find more at patreon.com slash strongsongs, and you can find the names of my wonderful whole and half-note backers in the show notes for this episode. However, there is one other thing you can do to really help this show out, and that is actually very easy. It doesn't cost you anything. You just have to leave a review on the Apple Podcast app. Now, it doesn't have to be a written review, you can just leave a rating. You can give me a star rating if you like the show. And um, that helps people find the show because it gets Strong Songs closer to being listed in some of Apple's sort of top, you know, noteworthy podcast lists. And that, I think, is where a lot of people can discover the show. I'm not listed in those yet, but I think we can kind of get there. So if you like this show, if you listen to this show, and if you, you know, if you're listening to it through Apple, which, you know, a lot of people are, uh, if you could head over there and leave a review, that would be really, really cool. If you've already left a review, which quite a few of you have, I really appreciate it. So thanks so much for doing that. You can always get in touch with me at strongsongspodcast at gmail.com, or you can tweet at me at Kirk, K-I-R-K Hamilton. Um, I am welcoming questions for the next Q&A episode. That probably still won't be for a little while since we did two back-to-back in May, but um, I'm I'm always open to hearing listener questions. And also just any feedback, any thoughts, any suggestions you may have. I've got a really cool running playlist of listener suggestions that I, you know, have to take the time to check out. And I've learned about a lot of cool music from all of you. So feel free to reach out with any of that. 
All right, let's get into this episode's strong song, which might be the most rocking song ever written about aquatic life. I'm not totally sure about that, but just off the top of my head, that sounds right. What aquatic life might we be talking about? Well, it's a certain fish that has some sharp teeth, and were those sharp teeth to bite you, you might say something like this. Ooh, barracuda! Aw, yeah, indeed. On this episode, we're going to be talking about Hart's 1977 body shaker, Barracuda, with its juicy, flanged guitar tones, odd time signatures, galloping groove, and one of the most furious, iconic vocal performances in rock history. It's been a minute since we talked about something that rocked quite like this, and I'm excited to get back into rock music to talk about the nature of rock, what makes something rock, and the sort of tonal legacy of rock that I think that Barracuda actually fits um, fits into very interestingly. Hart was a band that wore their influences on their sleeve, and you can hear a lot of those influences uh, extremely clearly on Barracuda, and I think that kind of makes it a cool one to talk about, both to look at those influences and then see how um, Hart took those, those sounds and then repurposed them into their own thing. First up, some vital stats. Barracuda was the lead track on Hart's second album called Little Queen, which came out in 1977. It features the Wilson sisters, Anne on lead vocals, and Nancy on acoustic guitar and backing vocals, as well as Roger Fisher on lead guitar, Howard Lease on rhythm guitar, Steve Fawson on bass, and Michael DeRosier on drums. It was written by Anne and Nancy Wilson, along with Roger Fisher and Michael DeRosier. There's actually a pretty recent Wall Street Journal interview with Anne and Nancy Wilson, where Anne Wilson describes Barracuda as this poem she wrote that was sort of her coming unglued, is how she describes it. It's just the sleazeballs and the constant sexism that they faced in the music industry, being two women leading a rock band in the 1970s. So they wrote Barracuda, and it's kind of this primal scream of fury, really. And that comes across in the song. I think that that energy is a big part of what made the song stand the test of time and what made it so unusual even for the time. There's a lot to get into here with the guitar tones and the guitar performance and the time signatures and the groove and the sort of lineage and history of this song and how this sound came to be. So uh, let's get right into it. Barracuda does not make any bones about what it is at the very beginning. It uh, is one of those songs that you can identify within the first few seconds, not because of a drum beat, but this time because of a guitar riff, specifically Roger Fisher's lead guitar riff that's the basically the defining riff of this entire song. So that's the Barracuda riff right there. That's also the Barracuda guitar tone. So I want to kind of separate those two things and just sort of identify them so we've kind of got a frame of reference going forward. So when people talk about guitar tone, it's a kind of a combination of three things. Let's say three things. First, there's the guitar itself. So the guitar makes a sound. You know, a certain guitar has a certain kind of a sound. An acoustic guitar, of course, sounds very different than an electric guitar. But also a semi-open body, you know, more jazz guitar sounds kind of bigger and warmer than a really small, closed, heavy guitar. The types of pickups the guitar can make a difference in the sound too. That's one of the reasons that, you know, Gibson guitars sound different from Fender guitars. You know, a Fender Stratocaster, which is the guitar that looks probably like what a guitar looks like when you just picture one, uh, that sounds a certain way. It can sound kind of scooped and it's a pretty middle of the road sound. (laughs) That's Stevie Ray Vaughan, owner of the classic Stratocaster blues sound. 
a Fender Telecaster, which is like a Stratocaster with a shoulder, is how I always kind of describe it. Um, that's always very twangy, you know, it has a kind of a jangly sound that you'll hear in more kind of indie rock, but also in country music. Right, that is Mr. Brad Paisley, king of the country Telecaster shred. A Gibson Les Paul, which is the guitar that, I don't know, Slash plays in Guns N' Roses, that has a much thicker, heavier sound, partly because it's made out of a heavier wood. Those are very heavy guitars if you've ever worn a Les Paul, and also because of the pickups that are in the guitar. I'll explain what those are in a second. Here's Slash playing a solo on November Rain, probably one that you know. Les Paul is great for this sort of soaring hard rock guitar solos, partly because Les Paul has really good sustain, which means when you pick a note and you hold your finger down on the fretboard, the note rings out for a really long time, just partly because of how the guitar is designed. So that makes it good for those soaring epic leads, like Slash would play or like a lot of kind of hard rock players. I've seen people say that Roger Fisher actually played at Les Paul live. That's a pretty popular guitar for hard rock, like the kind that Hart would play, though some things about this recording make me pretty sure that he's playing a Stratocaster. So that's the first First step is the guitar itself. The second equally important thing is the amplifier. So you run into an amp and then the amp is sort of what boosts the signal. It amplifies the signal that is that the pickups are sending into the guitar cable and it takes the tone that your guitar is making, which if it's an electric guitar is actually pretty quiet. You would know if you've ever, you know, strummed an electric guitar without plugging it in. Uh, it doesn't sound like a whole lot. It sounds like this. sort of missing something, right? So what the amplifier does is it takes that signal, that kind of small sound, and it amplifies it. And it does that by kind of pushing it through a series of amplification stages, then then out into a speaker, and the speaker provides a whole lot more uh, volume, especially if you've got you know, a really big amp. That's why the bigger amps with more speakers are even louder than the small ones, which are generally pretty loud too. I, I kind of find that smaller amps tend to be just fine. A lot of people use huge amps, and they don't always need to. So I'm sort of a, I'm sort of a fan of smaller guitars amps just personally. They're also easier to carry to a gig so it's partly just a practical thing. So an amp can sound a bunch of different ways. You can make an amp sound really clean and pristine you know and just give you a nice chimey tone. Or you can overdrive an amp so that it starts distorting and you can get a really crunchy gritty dirty tone that way. without using any kind of you know other effects or anything like that. Amps can kind of do a lot if you know what you're doing. You can get a really good tone just using a good guitar that you really understand and a good amp that you really understand. So let's listen back to Roger Fisher's first riff there and see if we can tease out what exactly is going on because it's a little bit more than just a guitar and an amp. Okay, so first of all, he is definitely playing distorted. Like I said, he's playing a Stratocaster. I actually don't have a Strat, so I'm playing a Telecaster that I have, which is not really the same thing, but it, uh, I think it'll work for our intents and purposes. Um, so he's playing what sounds like a Strat to me through a definitely an overdriven amp. So there's there's a lot of distortion in his tone. So there's one other thing that's kind of an, the third defining element of the Barracuda guitar tone of the sound that Roger Fisher got, and that's something called a flanger. And it gets to the third sort of the third element of the three things that define 
a guitar's sound. So the first thing is the guitar. You plug a cable into the guitar and you run it out into the amp. That's the second thing. The amp makes the sound and amplifies the sound. But in between the guitar and the amp, you can put effects. And guitar effects can do all kinds of things. And they basically shape and morph the signal that's coming from the guitar toward the amp before it hits the amp. There's a lot of complicated signal chain stuff and people do all sorts of things with looping back and going into the amp first. And it can get really, really complicated. I don't want to spend too much time on it. But um, basically, you can think of guitar effects as something that affects the guitar signal that comes out of the guitar before it hits the amplifier. Some very common effects include the chorus effect, which kind of doubles up and fattens the tone. Or there's a delay effect, which adds an echo after your tone. Uh, the Edge from U2 uses delay really effectively. Or there's a vibrato pedal, which adds a kind of vibrato or a tremolo to your notes. There's a wah-wah pedal, which you kind of move up and down and it adjusts the sound envelope around your signal and it gives it your guitar kind of a crying wah sound. I'm sure you know what a wah-wah pedal sounds like from listening to any funk music or listening to Jimi Hendrix. A lot of times effects are pedals, so they're called effects pedals, and they sit on the stage in front of the guitar player and you can kind of stomp on them. They're also called stomp boxes because you kind of stomp them and they light up and that turns the effect on and off. So if you're a guitar player, maybe when you play a solo, you like to turn on a delay and a flanger to really bring make your tone sing and then you turn it off when you're playing rhythm parts or you know you can you can kind of change your tone really easily on the fly and that's why stomp boxes are usually used so there are a ton of different kinds of guitar effects i mean there's a whole world out there of people who just make guitar effects pedals people combine different effects people make custom pedals people take existing pedals and customize them themselves it's a whole world of stuff that we're not going to get into now though i do think it'd be kind of fun to just break down a bunch more guitar effects sometimes but that should give you an idea of what i'm talking about when i talk about guitar effects So let's just focus for now on Roger Fisher's guitar tone, which is using an effect called a flanger. So a flanger is a very cool kind of effect because it adds a sort of subtle motion to a guitar's sound by adding this sort of undulating oscillator to the tone. Okay, so here's a demonstration. This is just a G power chord uh, with some distortion but no effects. Okay, and now let's hear the same thing with a flanger turned on. It's a noticeable difference, right? You can hear that motion. It's like underneath the tone. And uh, you can adjust, you know, the depth and the frequency of a flanger. The barracuda tone isn't flanged as hard as that tone was. So you can do a lot to make up one power chord sound much bigger. So when I say a power chord, I'm not just trying to sound cool. A power chord is a real thing. Um, A power chord on guitar is just root five root, or sometimes just root five. It's basically a chord with almost no harmony. It's just the root and the fifth. Like for example, here's an E major chord. And here's an E power chord. It's got a lot less musical information, which lets you build riffs out of it that actually sound a little bit cleaner because you're not playing a whole bunch of harmony. You're kind of just playing the bass note and a fifth above it. So it's like somewhere in between playing guitar and playing bass. You'll hear it a lot in hard rock tunes. 
so a power chord is a specific thing and it's a very open sound and it sounds really good with distortion because it leaves a lot of room for the distortion to kind of fill in the gaps Anyway, whenever you hear someone talking about power chords, they're not just talking about hitting a chord hard or something. Um, it is a specific type of chord. It's actually a specific type of chord that turns up a lot in Barracuda. So you will hear a lot of power chords in this tune, and when I talk about power chords, that's what I'm talking about. Okay, so that's a lot of time to spend on just the opening riff of Barracuda, but it's a big deal riff, and I hope that spending that much time on it has given you a sense of how much work kind of goes into crafting a guitar tone, as well as some of the specifics of what Roger Fisher is doing on this song. So let's listen to the full intro now and bear all of that in mind. Uh, he is playing a Fender Stratocaster, which gives him a kind of middle-of-the-road tone and also gives him the ability to do something that we'll talk about in a second. Um, it's running into an amp that's overdriven, and he's using a flange effect to get a kind of flanged tone that has that oscillating, undulating motion going on. And it's kind of subtle, but it's definitely in there and you can hear it. Enter the bass. Here we go. So other than Ann Wilson's voice, that intro establishes pretty much all of the sounds that are going to play a major part in Barracuda. Um, we've got, of course, Roger Fisher's lead guitar. Steve Fawson comes in that second time to double him on the bass. Then Michael DeRosier comes in on drums. And Howard Lease comes in on rhythm guitar. And the interplay between Howard Lease and Roger Fisher is actually a really big part of this song. And there's some very cool stuff going on there. So you can hear the stereo guitar. Suddenly there's a lead and a rhythm guitar. They're both playing riffs and kind of bouncing back and forth between one another while the drums are playing that galloping groove underneath them. We'll get into that galloping groove in a minute, but one more guitar thing that I just want to point out, and that is a really cool effect that is mostly Roger Fisher, but I hear Howard Lease doing it as well, and that is using the whammy bar to a really cool effect. So the whammy bar is also called the tremolo bar, and it's a bar that sticks out at the bridge, sort of the base of the guitar, at the base of the strings, down by your right hand. I do not have a Stratocaster, as I said, I actually don't have a guitar that has a tremolo bar, so I can't demonstrate it for you. I am also not a shred guitar soloist, so I wouldn't really be the best person to demonstrate it anyways, but it lets you kind of go, wow, wah, like really dip your tone by using this um, this bar that you can kind of grab onto with your right hand. You've almost certainly seen guitar solos do it, and that's what they're doing. Um, Roger Fisher does it at the very beginning really awesomely. He hits a harmonic actually on the string, and then he just bends the heck out of it, and it sounds great. It's, it's this. So whenever you hear some that kind of a wah wah, that kind of wah 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 wah, wah really quick uh, shake on the note, that's usually somebody using a whammy bar to make that sound. So Lee and Fisher are doing a lot of whammying and kind of sliding around of the neck, doing a lot of dive bombs and just having a really good time. While the groove that they're playing and the groove that Michael DeRosier is emphasizing on the drums is this galloping groove. It's basically you know dun da da dun da da dun da da dun da da dun. And it really sounds like a horse's gait. I don't think that that's a mistake. You know, the sound of galloping horses, especially, you know, the sound of an army on horseback galloping into battle. It's an evocative sound that's been with human beings for hundreds of years. So it makes sense that it would be such a kind of groove that turns up in a lot of music. For example, the band Nazareth, who had been touring with Hart, has a cover of a Joni Mitchell song called This Flight Tonight that has a very, very similar groove. Now 
Now, Nazareth's cover was recorded in 1973. If you go back to 1970, an even bigger band, Led Zeppelin, had a kind of similar groove in their song, Immigrant Song. Don't worry, don't worry. We're going to do Led Zeppelin on Strong Songs, I promise. It'll happen in the not-too-distant future. But actually, uh, Michael DeRossier's drum groove on Barracuda is very similar to John Bonham's drum groove from Immigrant Song. So in addition to that, just sort of bump it a bump it a bump it a bump, like that kind of galloping feel, that subdivision, it's also just got a very similar drum beat underneath it. Now, lest you think that Led Zeppelin invented the idea of the galloping rhythm and the galloping groove, uh, we're in 1970 right now. Let's go back 140 years to 1829 and listen to another piece of music you may be familiar with that actually uses the same technique. That's right, Rossini's William Tell Overture actually uses the same kind of a galloping groove, really. And here's the thing, it wasn't invented by Rossini either. It wasn't invented by any musician. It was invented by horses. that's the thing, right? This is a musical idea that recreates something in the natural world. So horse galloping was the thing that invented the galloping groove. Horses galloped the certain way that they did, and they made a certain sound. And when humans heard it, they realized that that sound was evocative and felt driving. It felt like an animal surging forward. And so they started to write music that reflected that. So whether it's Hart singing about barracudas, Led Zeppelin singing about Norse mythology, Nazareth covering Joni Mitchell, or Rossini paying tribute to William Tell, uh, the galloping groove is pretty much as old as horses. So okay, the horses are galloping at full speed, the guitar, bass, and drums are in, it's time for Ann Wilson to start singing and for us to get into the verse. Right off the bat, there's a few cool things going on. There's something cool going on melodically. There's something cool going on rhythmically. And there's a little cool lyrical thing in there, too. When Ann Wilson sings, I had to turn my heart away. Uh, I think that's sort of a reference to the blow up that they had with Mushroom Records, their first record label, which was at least part of the impetus for the writing of this song. Let's look at the melodic thing first. So first of all, this is just a killer entrance and a really cool melody. I mean, Ann Wilson just has the best voice and her delivery throughout is really, really cool. But I love how she comes in just full bore. And the melody that she sings is a little bit unexpected in one specific way. Okay, so the main riff kind of is built around an E power chord and a G power chord. And it kind of implies a tonality of E minor. You know, it sounds like this. So with that framework established, it's actually kind of interesting that Ann Wilson's first lyric has a G sharp in it. Uh, The melody that she sings sounds like this. Now the third note in that melody is a G sharp, which is actually the major third. So she's singing a major melody, even though the song is kind of implied minor. Then again, I say it's implied minor because like I mentioned before, this song is mostly built out of power chords, which are chords with a root and a fifth. 
Power chords don't have a third, which means that a power chord can kind of be major or minor. They sound a little bit minory, and by going from E to G, you know, G is the minor third of E, so that's implying a minor tonality. But there's nothing saying, you know, there's nothing in Western harmony saying that Ann Wilson can't sing a G sharp on that melody, and so she does, and it gives it a kind of a brighter and sharper entrance than it would if she were singing in minor. So they're really just going back and forth between two different chords there. There's that E power chord that Ann Wilson is kind of making into an E major, but it's an E power chord. And then they do that big hit, that second chord, and that's on a C. So basically they're going between E and C. They do that E power chord, and then they go up to a C power chord, and it's all power chords all the way down. Now, rhythmically, there's something kind of weird going on here, right? If you were listening to that and trying to count it, you might have gotten a little bit tripped up, and that is for a good reason. It's because there's an extra beat in this verse, and also because there's kind of an anticipated hit that happens before the extra beat that already trips you up. So it's a little like when you're walking along, and you trip a little bit and lose your balance, but you're about to catch it, and then you trip on something else, and you really just totally fall on your face. Okay, so this song is in 4-4, like a lot of songs. That means 1, 2, 3, 4, 1, 2, 3, 4 is kind of how each bar is broken up. Um, Listen back to that verse again and try to figure out where the extra beat is uh, by counting along with it. One, two, three, four, like that. Two, three, four. One, two, three, four. It's a little bit tricky, right? So one thing that you can do to focus on the groove of this song is listen for the pop. Now, if you remember on our last episode about Janelle Monae's tightrope, I kind of broke the fundamentals of any groove down to these three concepts, the concept of a thump and a pop and a sizzle. In this case, uh, the thump is the kick drum, the pop is the snare drum, and the sizzle is the hi-hat. So that's a really standard thump, pop, sizzle that Michael DeRossier is doing on the drums. And you can listen for that pop of his snare drum hitting, and that'll kind of tell you where the two and the four are, and it'll help you keep your keep your bearings and it actually also is what he does on the on that extra beat he hits the snare once for the extra beat so if you're having a hard time counting it listening along with the snare can be one way to do it so this time we're going to listen to it again and i'm going to count along with it and pay attention for that extra beat which comes at the very very end of the phrase they just sort of add an extra beat just for kicks to kind of trip you up and then they land right on the downbeat of the next verse one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, five, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. Cool. So you hear it, right? One thing that you maybe notice is that they do the big hit, the C chord, it actually changes chords on two. So it's like one chord change. which already throws you off a little bit because you maybe weren't expecting the chord to change right there in the middle of the phrase like that, so that then when they also add that extra beat to the bar after that, it feels even more confusing. There's also the fact that the guitars go to that open chord after playing the you know galloping groove through the E, so when they hit the C, the guitars open up and the bottom kind of drops out a little bit. So the whole thing is very cleverly designed to kind of trip you up and then really trip you up and just keep you a little bit off balance, which is a, a cool approach to a song that has a very locked in steady groove like this it's locked in and steady but that allows them to trick you into feeling like you know where it's going rhythmically so that when they pull the rug out from under you it's extra disorienting all 
All right, let's get into that first chorus. Oh man, all right. There's a lot of cool stuff there. Uh, let's start with the guitars. So for starters, the two electric guitars are playing a riff together, and they actually go into these pretty sick guitar minis um, in the second phrase of that chorus. So first they play a riff that's kind of like this. Then they go into harmonies for a line that sounds like this. And then Ann Wilson just lets it all hang out on that last line, going up to a high F sharp and just wailing through to the, that kiss off final line. Now the chorus is also where Steve Fossen's bass playing kind of comes to the fore a little bit. He plays a neat line throughout this chorus. It sounds kind of like this. listen to it in the actual recording. I'll play a little bit with it so you can hear it better. Now throughout all of that, you might be hearing another sound over in your right channel, and that is actually Nancy Wilson playing the acoustic guitar. You can really hear her on the choruses, and it's kind of too bad that she doesn't do that much on this song, because Nancy Wilson is a really, really good guitar player who added a lot and was a big part of the you know what defined Hart's sound. So she was a co-writer of this song, and she might not be featured prominently in the actual performance of the song, but she is a great player. And just to kind of highlight that, I want you to I want to zoom back a year to Crazy on You, which was the debut single. For heart. It was the huge song that made them. That song begins with Nancy Wilson on acoustic guitar, and I mean, just check this out. Okay, so Anne may feature more prominently than her sister Nancy on Barracuda, but let it never be said that the two of them weren't totally integral to Hart's sound. Back to Barracuda, there might be something that you notice during Ann Wilson's little kiss-off line, would you Barracuda, at the end of that first, uh, that first chorus, and that is actually an effect that has been placed on her voice. See if you can hear what it is. Yeah, so there's delay on Ann Wilson's voice. Actually, throughout this entire recording, I think they just turned on the delay and they left it on. So she gets this single sort of slapback echo on her voice that you stop noticing really quickly, but it's actually there at every moment of the song. So now it's time for some guitar interplay, and then we get into the second verse, which is as good a time as any to talk about Ann Wilson's incredible singing. Uh, because she does some of her most impressive stuff here, and it really kind of highlights what makes her special. Back the time, we were all 
man, all right. So one of the things that really sets Ann Wilson apart, for me anyways, as a vocalist, is her attitude and the way that she delivers her lines. There's a sort of a swagger and an energy to her that's like this white-hot poker, especially on this song. And it cuts through in a way that is unusual, even for the best rock bands of the 70s, really. So when you hear Ann Wilson sing a line like, No right, no wrong, you're selling a song, a name, whisper game, but she sings it like this. I mean, geez, Uh, there's a really clear influence from other rock singers. You know, Robert Plant is the clear comparison there. The delivery, the high notes, the sort of scream that she does is very similar to Robert Plant. lead singer of Led Zeppelin, but there's something in her delivery that's different. And maybe it's just that I know what this song is about and the subject matter just seems so much more vital, but it's there's just an undeniable energy to her voice. I mean, really, those two seconds and that rip down from a high G kind of established this as one of my favorite rock vocal performances of all time. The first time I heard that, I think it just lit my hair on fire. There's also a cool thing a little bit earlier where um, where Anne just sort of goes, uh-huh. uh-huh. And Roger Fisher sort of answers with this, like, hammer-on trail on his guitar. It's just a cool little moment of interplay that I think was a neat punch-in that they did. From there, it's time to go into the second chorus, which let's listen to now. It's largely the same. The guitar parts are basically the same, but there are a couple of other little differences uh, that I want you to listen for. So here's the second chorus. So first of all, that line delivery, ooh, Barracuda. I'd say that's the thing that's kind of the defining sound of this song. Um, Interesting to think that she only does that on the second chorus. And the first and third choruses have different things that she does over that stop time section. And they're actually cool counterparts of one another. They complement one another. This is also a cool place to listen for Steve Fossen again on the bass, because this is kind of his moment, I think. The very end of the chorus is the time when the bass can do something a little bit different. And on that first time through, he played these sort of, you know, this one type of line. It was kind of like arpeggios descending down through the chords. And this time he starts high and he kind of walks a bass line down. Uh, Here, listen one more time and I'll play along with it on piano so you can hear it. I always like noticing little things like that on simple songs like this with pretty simple instrumentation. I mean, everyone was just playing this in the studio. It's cool to notice when a guitar player or a bass player kind of took the opportunity to just play a slightly different fill or a slightly different line in the background. It's not the most important thing happening, but it adds a nice sense of variety to the recording that I think you hear even if you don't realize you're hearing it. So after that, it's time for the bridge. The bridge is kind of in two parts. First, there's the vocal bridge, which features, I believe it's Nancy and Ann Wilson singing in harmony. And then there's kind of a guitar solo that carries on over the bridge chord progression, so let's just listen to all of that once. (laughs) 
So a thing that I really like here actually, so I like those vocal harmonies that are kind of going over a C major chord to an A major chord uh, back down to that E riff. And the harmonies are pretty cool. They kind of move in a nice way. But what I really like that's going on is, I believe this is Roger Fisher on guitar over in the right channel. And I should say that I'm guessing a lot of these guitar parts are, are Roger Fisher, but they might be Howard Lease. He's playing some pretty cool stuff too. I'm just generally assuming that Fisher is playing the lead parts. But anyways, he's over in the right channel and he's kind of like muted his strings and he's just picking through the uh, the C chord and then he goes down to the A. And it's it's really cool. It kind of adds a nice little uh, level of motion as they move through that. And it, it, it adds a little more space, which lets the vocals come out too. Sounds pretty cool. So listen back to just that line and try to pay attention for that over in the right channel for what the guitar is doing along with that cool, uh, that cool harmony vocal part. So once they've reset to the E groove, then they just do the thing again with different lyrics. So right before the guitar solos, they go into one more instance of odd time signatureness in this song. Uh, they start playing a, a groove that's, I guess, in seven. You know, it's a bar of four and a bar of three. It's basically missing a beat. So listen to the recording. I'll count along the second time because this this groove comes back a couple other times in the song. So it's worth getting your head around how to count it and how to not be thrown off guard by that missing beat. Do it again. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, one. So it's really a pretty straightforward guitar solo section. The solo itself isn't some, you know, mind-blowing exercise in technique or harmonic conception or anything like that. It just rocks. I mean, he's getting a great tone and it sounds really good. And the way that they transition between that kind of halftime thing that they do and then suddenly going into that driving seven thing with the missing beat is pretty cool. I like that this tune starts by adding a beat at the beginning. Remember, they had that bar of five or, you know, just sort of the extra beat on top of the four four. And then they end by subtracting a beat. So it's almost like, the missing beat you know the time has come to collect and this song requires a complete set of beats and so because there were extra beats before now they need to have fewer beats so if you're ever writing a song and you do something by adding a beat to you know surprise your listeners just remember that later in the song you have to subtract that beat and you have to make it even out i'm totally kidding that is not actually a rule <laughs> So this third chorus that they go into here rocks just as hard as the first two. And actually, there are a couple little things about it that I like um, even more that set it apart. So uh, let's listen to that chorus. A 
Okay, so obviously that's an awesome vocal capper for uh, for Ann Wilson's performance. But the first thing that I noticed or that I want to point out is something you've maybe guessed because I pointed it out in the first two courses. And that, again, is what Steve Fossen, good old Steve Fossen back there on the bass, is having fun. This is his most ambitious uh, little bass fill. And remember, he played different bass fills each time. So that first time he played the kind of thing that went up and then down and then back up. The second time it was this walking descending line. And this third time he plays an even busier walking descending line that goes all the way down the neck um, to the root of that final chord. It's really cool. Sounds like this. So that's fun. It's just always fun to hear what the guy who doesn't always have the most interesting thing to do on this song does when he's given the opportunity. But really, it's the vocal performance that makes this third chorus stand out. Uh, I really like, in particular, how Ann Wilson says no. She says, if the real thing won't do the trick, no. It's just a great vocal delivery. And it's another example of how her sort of swagger and her specific delivery just set her performance apart. But then there's also the matter of that stop time, you know, where the band drops out and where in the past she said, ooh, Barracuda, or would you, Barracuda? But here, she doesn't say anything at all. Man, I love that so much. The fact that she just doesn't sing there. And you know it's coming. And when she finally comes in on that kind of, ah, Barracuda, like when she really just, you know, sneaks in on it like that, it's awesome. But it's the fact that she just doesn't sing anything over that break. You can just picture her standing there on stage, you know, holding the mic up above her head or something with no sound at all, except for those guitar harmonies just sort of fading out. Oh, man, it's so dramatic. It's so good. So now it's time for the song to go into its outro, which is really just kind of this pedal tone. You know, Steve Fawson, if you remember, a pedal tone is just when there's one note in the bass and he's just pedaling on an E, while the guitars make all kinds of wild sounds and kind of trade off. If you can hear in there, there's also this sound that's like a death ray laser gun sound or something. So I saw a cool interview with uh, Roger Fisher talking about that. He calls it the alien attack. Um, I'll link to it in show notes, but it was basically something like an electrical signal they were getting that was causing a weird sort of noise on the guitar signal when he unplugged from the guitar and like held it close to the amp. So they recorded it and then they kind of layered it on over the guitar parts to get this like death ray laser sound. It's pretty cool. So from there, the guitarists do something kind of cool where the lead guitar will play a note and then the rhythm guitar will play the same note just a little bit behind it. Listen for that. So this is the very closing part, and they're back in that 7-4 kind of rock thing that they did during the guitar solo section. Uh, But there's one cool thing going on here that I want you to try to listen for, and that's how they've broken up the guitar parts. 
Okay, so there are two guitar parts going. In the right channel, I'm assuming that's Roger Fisher, and in the left channel, I'm assuming that's Howard Lease. They're both playing this riff that's, you know, bump da bump da bump da bump da bo da 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 but they play different parts of the subdivision so that you hear the two parts um, isolated from one another. Uh, Roger Fisher is playing downbeats, and Howard Lease is playing upbeats. So it's fun to tease those two parts apart. If you just listen to the lead guitar part, which is the one on the right channel, it sounds like this. And then if you listen to the guitar that's in the left channel, he's playing the upbeat, so that sounds like this. It's only when you put them together that you get that cool ping-ponging effect that the finale of this song gets, where the one guitar in the right channel plays the downbeat, and then the guitar in the left channel plays the upbeat, and they're kind of bouncing off of one another. So that, when you put them together, sounds like this. It's a really cool effect, and it goes to show how just little simple ideas like that when you're arranging for a band that's a straightforward band, you know, two electric guitars, electric bass, drums, and vocals is about as straightforward as rock groups come. And you can actually do a lot with that second guitar. It's why having a rhythm guitar can really you know, make a rock band sound much bigger is you could have everybody kind of play the same thing or have the lead guitar player, you know, play solos and play lead lines. But if you're careful about your arranging, you can do cool stuff like that, that especially in the studio can add a whole lot to your sound. So listen to that now on the actual recording and pay attention for the downbeats in the right channel, the upbeats in the left channel and the way that the guitars are kind of ping ponging back and forth. And with that cool stereo twist on a familiar riff, it is time for Hearts Barracuda to say goodbye. And that'll do it for my take on Hearts Barracuda, a furiously rocking song from a band that I think doesn't really get their due, even today. Uh, people acknowledge how great Heart is, they definitely had hit singles and, and had a lot of success, but I think they're still a little bit underrated in the world of rock bands, and that should not be the case. So hopefully the next time you hear Heart, you'll have a new appreciation for Anne Nancy Wilson, Roger Fisher, and the rest of the band, and for the ways that they would take familiar influences and weave them into something fresh and vital. Thanks so much to all of you for listening, as always, and thanks for spreading the word. If you can leave a review on the Apple Podcast app, as I mentioned at the top, I would really appreciate it, and it would help this show find more listeners. So please go do that if you haven't, and if you have, thanks so much. You can reach me, as always, at strongsongspodcast at gmail.com, and you can find out more about supporting the show on Patreon at patreon.com slash strongsongs. Thank you to everyone who's backed the show, no matter how much you've pledged or for how long. This episode's outro soloist is an old friend of mine, the guitarist Dan Nervo, a wonderful player who lives in the San Francisco Bay Area. Dan and I collaborated together in many bands over the years. He's a killer player, and I was happy to get him on this episode in particular, since it was such a guitar-heavy episode. So stick around for Dan's solo, and I'll be back in two weeks with yet another strong song. <laughs>